and go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. We don't have a handout tonight, so you'll just have to, uh, I guess, follow along and, and take good notes. I want to thank Preacher Malcolm for allowing me to fill in. For those of you that, uh, that don't know me and maybe I don't know you, my name is Travis Sharp. I am, uh, me and my family have been members here since 2009. We are missionaries and we work with Unsheltered International. And so it is my joy to be here with you tonight. And um, I've got something tonight that I want to share with you that I think will be of great value to myself and everyone here. And so I want you, if you will, to look into 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to start reading in, let's see, we're going to start reading in verse number 14. If you have your place, say amen. amen. All right. I tell you what, uh, I am in debt to the Carter family because uh, I, at the age of 18 years old, when I was 18 years old, on August the 1st, 1994, Pastor Malcolm Carter Sr. led me to the Lord in his driveway at Bethel Baptist Church in Fort Pierce, Florida. And so that's where God saved me. And I'm so appreciate, uh, appreciative for, of God for, for saving me, but also Pastor Carter Sr. for being the instrument that God used to share the gospel with me. But then also our pastor, uh, Malcolm Carter II, just a few months after I got saved, it was at his house late one night, almost midnight, and I had been uh, crying on his shoulder and counseling with him and asking him for advice and and uh, things just seemed upside down in my life and I was confused and about midnight that night he looked at me and he said son is God calling you to be a preacher and that was the first time that thought had ever really entered my mind and I thought man I just thought I was confused before uh, now you've really got me messed up he told me, he said, go home and pray about that and ask God. And I said, well, okay. Well, I didn't get two miles down the road, and I, I was so burdened about that as well as everything else that I pulled over and began to pray in an elementary school parking lot. And I just prayed in my mind. Have you ever felt like your mind was just uh, so many thoughts going through your mind you couldn't really think clearly? That's kind of where I was, and... And I prayed and I said, God, if, if he's right about that, about you want me to be a preacher, if that's what all this confusion is about, just, just show me, Lord. Help me to think clearly. And God is my witness. Right then and there, when I prayed that prayer, all the confusion in my mind uh, uh, went away. I, I thought clearly. I had peace in my heart. And, uh, and so I got real excited it was about midnight or a little after now. I turned around and went back to Preacher Malcolm's house and knocked on his door, and, and he came and opened the door, and he said, What now? And I said, You were right. And he said, About what? I said, God is calling me to be a preacher. He said, Good. Go home. We'll talk about this at church Sunday. And so Sunday came, and 
This is uh, at Bethel Baptist Church in Fort Pierce, Florida, and his dad, Malcolm Sr., was preaching, but I was too scared on Sunday to make that public before the church. But come Wednesday night, I went back to church, and his dad had been called away to go preach somewhere else, or maybe he was on vacation, I don't really remember, but Malcolm, uh, your pastor, he, he was preaching in, in his dad's place that night, and when he gave the invitation... I knew what I had to do, and so I came down to the front, and I, I guess I tested God one more time. I said, Lord, if you really, really, really do want me to be a preacher, then just let somebody come down here and pray with me, because I had seen, I was a brand new Christian, but I had seen before when some people would come to the altar, sometimes some friends would come and pray with them, but it had never happened to me. And so I said, just let somebody come pray with me if, if you're really serious about wanting me to be a preacher. And no sooner did I finish that prayer, a big old hand grabbed a hold of my shoulder. And I heard a voice begin to pray, and it was Brother Malcolm. And he was praying, God, give, uh, give Travis boldness and confidence to be able to surrender to your will tonight. And I knew what I had to do at that point. So afterwards, I got up, and, and I told him, I'm ready, I think. And he put his arm around me, and we made it public to the church that God had called me to preach. So I want you to know that, that uh, your pastor and his dad have been in the business of leading other people to Christ and into the ministry for a long time, and I sure am grateful to them for that and especially for those reasons, it's an honor for me to get to, uh, to stand here and, and in his pulpit and be a blessing tonight. Well, let's look at, at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. The Bible says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Bible goes on to say, Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? The word infidel just simply means unbeliever. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty." Let's look now at the first verse of chapter 7. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. And Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. And Lord, I've got to confess, Lord, that without your help and strength, I don't have anything to say. Lord, we can do nothing 
And that certainly includes teaching the Bible. We can do nothing without you. And so, Lord, I pray you'd touch me tonight and help me to, to remember what I've studied and to be able to convey this message with sincerity and clarity. And I pray you would fill us all with your spirit so that we can learn and grow from God's precious word. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, as you probably know, the, the church at Corinth, which is the body of Christ, the, the, the people that this letter, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, was addressed to, the church at Corinth had a lot of problems. They, uh, they constantly were getting very overtaken in sins of the Spirit, uh, things like jealousy and pride and arrogance and, and bitterness and unforgiveness. And also, they were very well known to be caught in, in many traps of sins of the flesh, like adultery and fornication. And there were even some very, uh, very intense cases of these sins. And, and much of 1 Corinthians and then a lot of 2 Corinthians is taken up with the Apostle Paul writing to them and encouraging them that they can, because they are new creatures in Christ Jesus, they can overcome these temptations and these sins and that they in fact had an obligation before God because they were new creations in Christ to put forth a valiant effort to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And so when you come into chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, the apostle uh, Paul, who's the writer, he gives three main calls to the, uh, to the Corinthian church. For example, in verses 1 through 4, he gives a call to Christian service. He tells them that uh, as workers together with him, he says, I beseech you to receive not the grace of God in vain. And he goes on to tell them that they should serve God with their whole hearts and their whole minds. He gives them a call to serve God. And then in verses 5 through 13, he tells them about the many sufferings and the shipwrecks, the beatings, the imprisonments and other perils that have befallen him as a child of God. And he warns them that that can happen to any believer in Christ. So in 5 through 13, he gives them a call not to service, but a call to suffering. And he talks to them about entering into the sufferings of Christ. But in the verses that, that I just read to you, he's not necessarily talking about a call to service or a call to suffering, but he begins to speak to them about a call to live a separated life as believers in Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to speak to you about tonight, is a call to separation. Real Christianity, I believe, is a call to separ separation. It is a call from God to those of us who are saved to embrace 
a loving God who died and gave himself for us. The word separate, as it is used here in in verse 17, it simply means to disunite. It means to divide, to sever. It means to set something apart for a particular use. It's very close kin to the biblical word sanctification. And I want to kind of set the stage with this illustration that happened to me one time. I was, our ministry is uh, to people who are homeless and for many, many years, a lot of times when I go speak at other churches and I tell them about our ministry, a lot of people will, you know, they'll give us clothes or money or food or anything we can use to help the homeless. And I was in Highland, Indiana one night and I had the privilege to speak Uh, to a congregation about our homeless ministry. And after the service, this gentleman came up to me. I was actually in the foyer shaking hands and just talking to people. And this guy came up to me and he said, Mr. Sharp, are you going to be here a little while? I said, sure, we have to, you know, take down our display and whatever. I'll be here a few more minutes. And he said, well, I'm going to go home and get some clothes. If you can use some clothes and I'd like to donate them to your ministry. And so I said, sure, that'd be great. And So he left, and he met me back in a few minutes, and he had uh, two or three garbage bags full of clothes, and then he had another garment bag uh, that he kind of sat to the side in his car, and he told me this story. He said, my wife just passed away last year. He was only maybe in his 40s or 50s, but... His wife had unexpectedly passed away. He said, it's been hard for me to, you know, to to part with her belongings. He said, but I really, I know I have to do something. So he said, these three bags, he said, I've just kind of, you know, thrown several things in there. There's some of my stuff in there too. He said, so I want to give you uh, these clothes. And then he reached in inside his vehicle. He said, but I have something else that's a little more special to me. And he got this garment bag and he, he took the, the, the bag off, and, and there was a very nice uh, three-quarter length ladies coat. And I could tell by looking at it that it hadn't been worn a whole lot, and it looked like it was probably a, a pretty expensive coat. It, it sure looked nice to me. He said, I bought this as a special gift for my wife because she loved these kind of coats and said she didn't have it very long, but she sure did love it. He said it's... Uh, He said it was a a special gift for her. I forget the occasion, but it was a special gift. He said it's really hard for me to part with this coat, but if you can put it to good use to keep somebody warm that needs it, I want to give it to you. And so I took the coat and held it kind of in my arm and shook his hand and spoke to him a few more minutes, and, and he got in his car and he left. We had this trailer with us that, a lot of times we used to pull when we went to churches and because we would collect donations and we just kind of put them in the trailer. And So I opened the back of the trailer and we were loading everything, else, uh, everything up and I grabbed the first garbage bag and I just kind of, you know, gave it a toss and tossed it in there with the other stuff and I grabbed the second one and the third one and I tossed it because normally we just kind of pile the clothes in and then when we, we would get back home to the mission we'd sort everything out and and hang it up and make it look nice and neat. And I grabbed that coat, 
and I, I went to, to just toss the coat in with the other donations, and right when I just was fixing to let it go, this man's words just kind of rang in my ear. How that that was a special coat. His wife loved it. He bought it for her to be a special gift. And, and something in my mind just would not let me throw it in with all the other donations. It was as if the Lord said, you better treat that special coat special. So I, I closed up the back of the trailer. I went, went around to the front of the trailer where we had our families hang up clothes. And I took that coat, I put it back in the garment bag, and I hung it up there with the other, with my suits and April's dresses. And I didn't think about it much. Uh, we didn't go straight home. We went down, I think, to, to Asheville, North Carolina. And we were on the street in Asheville, North Carolina, and we were doing homeless ministry. And one day, I, you know, we would pull the trailer around, and when we found people, we'd open the trailer and let them get clothes and things. And, and one day, I met this, this guy named Eric, and he was uh, sitting, actually, I was following this trail looking for homeless camps, and I was walking down this trail in the woods, and it was real cold, there was frost everywhere, and I came around this corner in the woods, and there was a, a big tree that had fallen down, and this guy was just sitting on the log in the middle of the woods on like uh, near an on-ramp there close to I-40 in Asheville. And I just kind of stumbled upon him, and he scared me, and I scared him, and he said, who are you? And I said, who are you? And And... I said, I'm a, a, a missionary, and I'm back here looking for people that might need help. He said, he raised his hand, he said, I need help. I said, okay, let's talk. And we began to talk, and, and once he was convinced that I wasn't the police or, or, or somebody that was going to hurt him, he began to tell me that his wife, was her name was Sherry, and that uh, she was in their tent, and they were camping down at the bottom of the hill. And I said, well, can we go visit her? And he said, no, I don't think it would be a good idea because, you know, she doesn't like strangers to come back there. And, and Anyway, I just don't think it would be a good idea. And we talked some more, and I said, well, let me leave you with these two care packages. And I had some gallon Ziploc bags with Bible tracts and had my contact card, and it had just snacks and hygiene products, and I gave him two of those, and, and we left. And I said, just call me, you know, if, if, if you'd like to meet again. So I left, and the next morning my phone rang, and it was Eric. He said, you know, he said, uh, Travis, I gave that package to my wife, and she wants to meet you. And I said, okay. And so we set up a time, and I met him at the log, and then he took me down this mountain, and we there was this trail in the woods. There was beer cans and trash, and turned over old grocery uh, shopping carts and all kinds of stuff. And then we finally made our way through the weeds and over the rocks and through mud. And finally, in a little clearing was this tent. And I could hear a little dog in the tent barking as we got close. And, and he went up and he unzipped the, the flap and he said, Sherry, uh, we're here and I'm here with that preacher. And he stuck his head in, and then he motioned to me, come on in. Okay. So I went inside the tent, and there was barely enough room to stand up. So I sat down, and it was, I forget what month it was, but it was there was snow on the ground, and it was freezing cold. And 
I went over and, and I just sat down and Sherry was over here, bundled up in four or five or six blankets, a, two or three t-shirts and a pair of shorts. She was freezing death. She just lips quivering, back cold. And Eric sat down over here. And as soon as I said, hi, Sherry, I'm Travis, she began to bawl crying. And for like three or four minutes, she cried uncontrollably. And I thought, man, what is going on? And then she told me this story. She said that she got saved when she was a young teenager, but her life took a wrong path. She began to use drugs and use alcohol and get in bad uh, relationships and it had wound her up. Her and her husband, Eric, were homeless. She said, for the first time in my life, a few weeks ago, I began to doubt if God was even real. And she told me this. She said, yesterday, I prayed to God for the first time in a long time. She said, I asked him, God, if you are really real, and you really are my Savior, would you just show me? She said it was just a few hours after that that Eric came to the tent, and he gave her that gallon Ziploc bag, and as soon as she uh, held it, the, the gospel tract that was inside was facing out, and it said, God loves you. She said, when I held that in my hand, I knew that God still loved me and that he was real. And we talked and, and prayed, and, and I said, Sherry, do you have a jacket? Do you have a coat? She said, no, I don't have anything. I said, wait right there, because I remembered the coat, the special coat hanging in the special place in the trailer. So I ran up the hill to the trailer, I got the coat, and I prayed all the way down, Lord, let this be her size, let this be her size, because I don't have a clue what women's sizes mean. I just, you know, men, it's so easy. Small, large, extra large. You know, women, y'all got all these numbers and stuff. And I'm like, Lord, if, it, if it's not her size, just transform it before we get to the tent. Well, we got back to the tent, and I said, Sherry, see if this will fit. She stood up, and she took off all those uh, blankets, and, and she put that thing on, and it fit like a glove. She said, I've never had nothing like this. Is this for me? I said, yes, sweetheart, that is for you. She said, well, why? Where's this from? And I told her the story of the man that gave it to me. And she sat there and wept. My whole point in telling you that story, it's not necessarily about Sherry and her getting it, though that was pretty awesome. But the point is about the coat. The coat was different than all the other clothing. It was different than all the other donations. It was different because the man that owned it said it was different. And I felt that responsibility. When we talk about separation, biblical separation, that is... When you and I, as God's children, begin to recognize that now that God has saved us and washed us with the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, and now that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, 
we are not the same person we used to be. We are not the owners of our own body anymore. But we are bought with a price and we have an obligation to live like that. Separation. I want you to know this. Every Christian can know what separation is all about by examining the three aspects of separation that are listed in these verses. So I'm just going to give you three aspects of biblical separation. Number one, the first aspect is leaving. Leaving. The aspect of leaving. In verses 14 down through 17, the Bible is, is, is about as plain as it can be on any subject in any, uh, any verses. It tells us that if we are going to live a life of holiness and godliness and righteousness, that there will have to be some leaving some things that goes in with that righteousness and holiness. Under leaving, I want to give you two things. Number one, I want you to see the assignment that is given. The assignment that is given. The Bible says in verse 14, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It tells us to come out from among them and be ye separate. So God has given all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ this assignment to separate ourselves and treat ourselves like God sees us as precious in the sight of God, blood-bought, saved, born-again children of God. Say amen right there. When God called Abraham in the Old Testament, he first revealed himself to Abraham, and then he demanded separation from Abraham's old way of life. God called Abraham to leave where he was and go to a place that he knew not of. And by faith, Abraham began to sojourn and live a life where he was seeking after God and leaving what he used to know as his life behind. And God gives us all this assignment to begin to follow after Christ and leave old associations behind, and leave old dealings behind, and, and leave the old entanglements of the world behind as we follow our Savior and Lord. So there's an assignment given, but then there's also an argument that is given. An argument that is given. I want you to look at verse 14. The Bible says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, and then it says, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And it goes on and there's this big old list of comparisons. So the argument given here for biblical separation is, uh, is like fivefold. First of all, he says that righteousness demands separation. That's what he means when he says, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness. Then he tells us that reality demands separation. What communion hath light with darkness? In other words, the reality is if we are called to be the children of light, 
How can we justify dwelling in and living in and operating in the darkness of this world? And so reality demands separation. It goes on to say that redemption demands separation. The Bible says, What concord hath Christ with Belial? The, the name Belial is an Old Testament term that's used for Satan. And so in other words, because we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, what, what agreement or what cooperation or what partnership do we as God's children have with Satan? And of course the answer is we should have none. Amen? The Bible goes on to say reason demands separation. That's what it means when it says in, let's see, in verse, uh, I think, 16, what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? It goes on to say that religion demands separation. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? And the Bible teaches us that our bodies, when we're saved by the grace of God, become the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. So, let's look at that. Let's think about Lot in the Old Testament. Remember Lot? The Bible affirms that when he pitched his tent toward Sodom, he was a righteous man. The Bible even called him just Lot, a just man. The scripture refers to his righteous soul. Yet he not only entered into Sodom, but he began to participate within the city. Peter would, would wind up writing in his letters about Lot and saying that he vexed his righteous soul day by day as he lived among the people in the city of Sodom. Can I say this? We as God's people need to practice separation today and leaving some things behind today because soon and very soon, we're going to be leaving this entire world behind. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm about ready to go. You turn on the TV or Facebook or any news or media outlet, and it's one awful thing after the other. And praise God, I am ready to leave here. But the thing that should amaze us, is when we're ready to leave here for heaven, but we're not ready to leave our wrong associations while we're here for righteousness in our lives. You know, the key here really is in verse 14. It's the word fellowship. The Bible says, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Fellowship. Separation, when you boil it down, it is about fellowship. Fellowship is a great Bible word. Not, not a lot of people use fellowship today. Today, you know, you, you might say hanging out, or you might say these other uh, more modern words. But I like the word fellowship. Webster's 1828 Dictionary says fellowship. It, it de uh, defines it as companionship a society, a pact, a consort, mutual association of persons on equal and friendly terms. 
For example, if going to the, the local bar is somebody's thing, then they will probably, you know, belly up to the bar, as, as we would say, and their fellowship is in the spirits and in the beer and in the wine. It, it's in the atmosphere. Everything that the bar is, there, there's country music songs about that. And, 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 and it's, a, it's, a, it's a camaraderie that's built around the bar. And there's a million other illustrations, both good and bad, to talk about association of persons with on equal or friendly terms. But the Bible teaches us that when we are saved, we are called by Christ into fellowship with Christ and with God the Father. For example, 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible goes on to say in, in, uh, in 1 John 1.3, that our fellowship should be only with the Father and the Son. It says, that which we have seen and heard have we declared unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 6 and 7 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, that is, brothers and sisters, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now, here's the fasten our seatbelts part. Here's the reality check part. When we have closer fellowship with the world than we do the church, then we seriously need separation in our life. When we have closer fellowship with worldly people or lost people than we do God's people, we need separation in our lives. If we are more closely acquainted with the, the, the latest things in life than we are with the Father and with the Son, we need to be practicing separation in our lives. Now, I know what somebody's thinking. Well, how in the world are we ever going to win anybody to the Lord if, you know, if we're separate? Listen to me. I'm talking about true biblical separation as it's laid out plainly in the pages of the Holy Scriptures. I'm not talking about moving to some convent somewhere. Say amen right there. I'm not talking about going and living on the backside of a mountain like a hermit. That's not separation. That's isolation. Amen? And God has not called us to isolate ourselves and pretend like we're holier and better than everybody else in the world. If you think that's what separation is about, you've missed it. God is calling us to fellowship. He's calling us to leave those things, those, those things that bind us and those uh, uh, things that, that pull us down and those snares that trip us up, the sins of the flesh and the sins of the spirit. He's saying leave those things behind and seek a more heavenly way of living. Amen? And then 
when we're full of the Holy Ghost and then when we're full of the Spirit of God and we're walking in the light and we're walking in the Word, then we can tell our friends about a friend that sticketh closer than a brother and they might actually believe us. Amen? So, the Bible says the first aspect of separation is leaving. Let me ask you this and then we'll move on. What do you need to leave? What do I need to leave? Has God been speaking to you about ending a relationship? Ending a a partnership? Maybe God's been, been quietly whispering to you about an activity or an association that's doing way more harm than, than it is good. Leaving. The second aspect of separation is, is not only leaving, but learning. Learning. I've heard preachers preach about separation. And, and, and all they talk about is don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And it's as if Christianity is some set of rules. Well, thank God for grace. This is not about rules and regulations. Somebody say amen. What is it about? Well, it's about learning. Learning is another aspect of separation. What kind of learning? Well, learning what God is like. And learning how we can be free in Jesus Christ to live above the entrapments of this present evil world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. Learning. We need to learn two basic things and that's laid out right here in these verses. Number one, we need to learn that there is a difference. There is a difference. What is the difference? The difference is God in us. God in us. That is the difference. Listen closely to verse 16. The Bible says, For ye are the temple of the living God. Did you hear that? Ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Say amen. By the way, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, that's the only thing that will give us power to overcome the world and power to fight the flesh and power to flee the wicked temptations that surround the child of God daily. There is a difference between saved and lost. There's a difference between right and wrong. Sometimes it, it, you look around, it seems like the world has just, everyone's forgotten that. There's a difference between clean and unclean. There's a difference between holy and unholy. There's a difference between good and bad. There's a difference between God's way and the world's way. There's a difference between yes and no. There's a difference between children of light and children of the darkness. There's a difference between what we should and should not do. Between what we should and should not say. Between what we should and should not touch. 
between what we should and should not see, between where we should and should not go. The Bible is telling us there is a difference, and we need to learn that. And the biggest difference is God in us. There is a difference. The Bible says in John 14, 17, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Praise God for that. Have you ever stopped long enough to think, where would you be without the Spirit of God dwelling in you? giving you power for living, giving you strength to make it through another day. I praise God. Not only does he love me, not only has he saved me, but he has moved inside. He's not working from the outside in. That's what the world does. That's what conformity does. But the Spirit of God works from the inside out. Amen? So, there is a difference. The difference is God in us. But then there's also a declaration. The difference is God in us, but the declaration is God for us. He's on our side. Verse 17 and 18 says this. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Now watch this. Don't miss this. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What does that mean? That means God is for you. God is on your side. He wants to work in our life. He wants to give us strength. He wants to give us power. He wants to walk with us. He wants to bless, with, uh, bless us. He wants to go through this world, not only being our Savior, not only being our Lord, but being the one that we have the closest fellowship with day in and day out. God is for us. I'm glad for verses like Psalm 139, 17. Oh, how precious. Also, are thy thoughts unto me, O God? How great is the sum of them. Psalm 147.3 says, He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. God is for us. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is for us. God is on our side. But we need to learn to be for God. That's what separation is. We need to be, we need to learn to be on God's side. He's in us and he's for us. The question is, are we in him and are we for him? I've got a good friend, his name is James Dennis. He's 70, maybe 71 years old now, maybe a little older, but he came to the Garden City Rescue Mission where I worked at in Augusta, Georgia when he was about 60. And he was uh, on, 
cocaine and alcohol and he was homeless and he came to the mission and, and God saved him. And maybe some of you think that when you get saved, all of your addictions just vanish, but most of us know that's not the case. It takes hard work, it takes discipline. A lot of times it takes us failing many times to, before we can, you know, really overcome some of these things. And, and by the way, addictions are real. And James was clean and sober for five or six months, and then one day he disappeared. Came back about a week later, all just dragging, and he had, he had fallen into, into drugs again. And we took him back, and he came back in the program, and he was clean for about a year, and he slipped up again. Gone three or four days and came back and weeping and crying, and, and we took him back. Praise God for second, third chances. Amen. He vowed to never do that again. And then about, about two years later, he, he got tempted again and he left. But this time, the car he was driving, he wrapped it around a telephone pole. And he almost lost his life. I went to see him in the ICU and he was swollen three times his normal body size with fluids and everything. We didn't know if he would live or die, but finally after a week or two, they let him out of the hospital and he came back to the mission. He told me he was coming back just to get his stuff because he knew that we, there's no way we'd let him in. But I talked to him. I said, James, I'm not going to stand in your way. I said, you got, there's enough problems. I'm not going to be your problem. You can come back if you want to. And that man sat in the chair in my office and hung his head and began to weep. Finally, he looked up at me. He said, Preacher, I think I'll just go right back there to bed number 31 and try it again. That was his bunk bed on the bottom bunk. That was his number. I said, That sounds good, James. We'll give it another whirl. And from that day to this day, he's had the victory. Why do you think that is? It, it, it's, it's because of God, yes. But it's also because he kept trying. He kept putting one foot in front of the other. He kept repenting of his sins, and he decided he would have to separate himself from certain friends, from certain places, from certain activities, and he decided his main fellowship needed to be right there in his place at the mission working. He became the mission cook and he just retired about two years ago as the cook. He worked for 10 years as the cook. He said, I'll just stay in bed 31. Is there somewhere that, that God wants you to stay? See, this declaration is God is for us. And the difference is, there's a difference between what God wants and what the world says is okay. Let me ask you this question. Are you learning that to be a child of God is to be consecrated unto Him? Living a life of holiness and righteousness? Trying your best to walk daily with the Father and with the Son? Let me give you the last aspect. What was the first aspect of biblical separation? Leaving. Amen. And the second one? Learning. There's, so there's some things we need to leave, things we need to learn. The last aspect of separation is not leaving or learning, but it is living. 
Now this ties it all in together. Don't check out yet. Stay with me. Chapter 7 and verse 1 tells us, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In other words, the goal of separation is not to cause the Christian to live a restricted life of do's and don'ts. The goal is not to retreat into some hermit-like uh, lifestyle where your family is the, the weirdest one in the neighborhood. That's not the goal. The goal of separation is to free us from the oppression of sin so that we can live an abundant life full of grace and truth. Amen goes right there. A, a big amen. Because the fact is, we'll never be free in Christ and live in victory holding on to the things of the world. It just doesn't happen. But preacher, I still go have drinks on Friday night with my buddies so I can win them to the Lord. I guarantee you there's a lot better chance of them winning you back to drunkenness than you winning them to the Lord if you're on the bar stool down in shots with them. Call me old-fashioned. It's, it's fine with me. That's not an insult. Praise God. That's a compliment. Amen. I want to be on the Lord's side, having fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son and living in victory so I can say to my friends and my family, come over here. It's great. There's grace over here. There's truth over here. There's joy over here. There's love over here. Amen? Living. Separation is so we can live. How do we have real life in Christ? How do we live like this? Well, two things. I'll share these with you and we'll be done. Number one, we must participate. We must participate. That's why chapter 7 and verse 1 says, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us cleanse ourselves. The Bible speaks here about the filthiness of the flesh. Things like lust and fornication, adultery, cursing, stealing, drunkenness, homosexuality, and, and on and on. But it says that there's filthiness of the spirit, pride, jealousy, envy, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, self-righteousness, and things like that. You remember the prodigal son? How that he took his father's inheritance. The, the, the sad thing there was he, he wanted what his father could give to him more than he wanted his father. Well, he took that inheritance and he left, and the Bible says he wasted his substance with riotous living, uh, living with harlots and drunkenness and all this stuff. Those were sins of the flesh. But when he got back home and his father forgave him and put the, the, the robe on him and the ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, his older brother was guilty of sins of the spirit because he was jealous. He was envious. He said to the father, why have you never thrown a party for me? Why are you, 
you know, why are you rejoicing that he was, has come home? He did all these awful things. What about me? His sin was pride and, and self-righteousness. And that's what the Bible means when it, when it talks about the filthiness of the flesh and the filthiness of the spirit. One is not any worse than the other. It's all sin. And we have to participate. Let us cleanse ourselves. And then we must persevere. The last part of verse 1 in chapter 7 says, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The word perfecting means to finish. It means to bring to an end. In other words, we have to keep striving and persevering. And I know it's it we have to, you know, as soon as it seems like as soon as we defeat one thing, five more come our way. You ever feel like that to you? As, as soon as we, we figure out how to get victory in this area, then that area uh, uh, comes and, and overtakes us. But the Bible says to persevere, perfecting holiness. How? In the fear of God, understanding that God loves us and God's watching us and God is ready to receive us one day. God has promised to do his part. And he does his part. The big question is, are we doing ours? That's what separation is. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Don't misunderstand me. None of us are going to be holy because we don't do a bunch of bad stuff. That's morality. We're going to be holy because our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. It's a process. And it's a process that we can do, we can seek, we can strive for. Biblical separation, it means leaving, it means learning, and praise God, it means living in Christ. Amen? Let's bow together for, for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I love you so much. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the mercy of God. Lord, thank you for the truth that we have read right here in the, in the pages of your word and what it means to us. Now, Lord, I pray you'd speak to each one of us individually and put your finger on those areas in our lives, God, that we need to pay attention to. Lord, there may be some of us here that need to leave some things. I pray that you would give us strength and grace. And Lord, we definitely need to learn that God is...